This is what God's word says, beginning in Luke chapter 11, verse 5. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we ask that you would now, by your Spirit, reveal yourself to us. Reveal your heart and your character and your love and the glory that you show us in Christ, in the gospel. Guide our thoughts and strengthen our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible, from cover to cover, is saturated with prayer. I don't know if you've noticed. Almost on every page you'll find a call to prayer. Uh, Instances of people praying, or even the actual records of the contents of some people's prayers. Uh, For example, the Psalms are very much that. And we also see Nehemiah's prayer, Daniel's prayer, Hannah's prayer, and dozens of others. Clearly, God wants us to be a prayerful people. Because we are to relate to God in constant dependence and trust and worship, all through communicating with Him in prayer. But at the same time, we can probably attest with all honesty that we find it rather difficult to be devoted to prayer in our lives. But what keeps us from such faithfulness and diligence in prayer is not just laziness or lack of discipline. Sure, those are are legitimate factors, but there's a deeper root issue, which as Jesus suggests by his words here, is primarily doubt. And it's not just doubt about the effectiveness or power of prayer, but ultimately, doubt of God's character. Now, some of you here may have been in a season of waiting for some time, whatever that may be, whatever you may have been waiting for and asking for. Perhaps you have been praying for a godly spouse, or you've been praying for the gift of children. You've been praying for a more secure job in the midst of an uncertain economy. Or you've been asking for healing from a long-standing physical ailment. Or you've been praying for the salvation of your loved ones. And you have prayed for this over and over and over again. But chances are, God did not answer you the very next day that you first began praying for this. And weeks passed. Months passed. Maybe even years have passed, and God has yet to reveal His answer. 
And what often happens is that over time, doubt begins to creep into our heart. Whether we realize it or not, we, we subconsciously begin to ask, has God been listening? Because it sure seems like I've been talking to a wall. Maybe I'll just move on. Because I've prayed for this for a long time and nothing's really changed. I guess I might as well give up asking. And when this happens, it's not just that we end up praying less and less for that one thing, but that discouragement begins to settle in and affect everything, our prayer lives as a whole. We become a less prayerful person altogether. Why? Because through that specific issue, you've begun to generally lose confidence that God is attentive to you and that your words actually reach His ears. And so you begin to feel deflated and you find yourself losing the will to pray and commune with God. You see, we have this tendency to allow our yet unanswered prayers to discolor our view of God as though He were distant, uninterested, or inaccessible. And Jesus knows that this is a common phenomenon that robs us of the joy of prayer. And that's why, having taught his disciples how to pray pray in in verses 1 through 4, he immediately follows up with encouraging us as to why we should pray. Why it's worth our time. Why we should persist and persevere in prayer. And why we should never lose heart. And he gives us these two mini parables that help depict God in His proper light. And they remind us the truth of who God is and what He is like, namely, that He is our perfect loving Father who is more quick to answer than we are to ask. God not only loves to hear the prayers of His children, but He loves to answer the prayers of His children. And these words here dispel any notion that that because we sometimes have to keep asking over and over again for some things, that it should suggest that God is in any way stingy or unloving or unconcerned. That couldn't be further from the truth. See, Jesus stresses this point beginning with this first little parable of a hypothetical scenario in verse 5. It's a bit of a complicated sentence structure, so let me just paraphrase it for simplicity. Jesus is saying something to the effect of, imagine you had a friend who lived close by and you went to his front door in the middle of the night and you asked for three loaves of bread because another friend of yours came from a long journey to spend the night at your house. But this journeying friend came on short notice and you realized that you had no meal prepared for him and your pantry is all empty and all the grocery stores are closed. And so in your urgency, you went to your friend living close by and you pounded on his door in the middle of the night asking for some bread. Now at this point, we might be a little puzzled, a little puzzled and wonder, what's the big deal? Why is the meal so urgent, especially given that it's the middle of the night? Can't the guests just go to sleep and wake up and wait for breakfast? Well, it's difficult for us to understand the crisis here because we live in a very different culture and time. We're in the 21st century, Western civilization. First of all, hospitality is something that is more optional. It's seen as going out of your way to host someone in your home and offer them a meal. But in the context of the ancient Near East, 
hospitality was non-negotiable. I mean, it was just what you do. It was the most basic custom uh, way of life. In fact, you'll find that if you ever go and visit the Middle East today, you would be shocked to find how warm and hospitable the typical Muslim household is. Even to strangers they've never met, they'll welcome you into their home, they'll serve you tea. Because their culture today has retained elements of this ancient Near East culture that is characteristic of biblical times. And especially in the Bible's context, the primary way in which hospitality was expressed was providing not only lodging, but a meal for the guest upon arrival. Because a meal was a sign of warmth and generosity and friendship. It was to reflect your own character and honor. By the way, this is why the Lord's Supper is such a rich sacrament, an expression of God's grace and love to us through the sign of a covenant meal that God prepares for us in Christ. But in any case, this is why providing a meal upon the arrival of a guest was an unquestionable necessity on the part of of the host. It was unthinkable to not offer a guest a meal. That would be akin to a moral and ethical failure. You know, it's sort of like how some of you, particularly based on your cultural upbringing, perhaps, you are absolutely unable to be invited to someone's house and arrive empty handed. No matter how much I as a host might say, no, 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 it's okay, just come, we have everything, you don't need to bring anything, you will find something to bring because you just can't find it in you to not bring anything. The thought of coming empty-handed makes your skin crawl. It would be to go against your very nature. And that's what it was like for the ancient world in biblical times. Hospitality was so ingrained in the ancient Near East culture that it was practically a sacred duty. And to leave a guest hungry was an abomination. And so that explains the the crisis of the scenario that Jesus paints here. You as the host, you, you must find bread to serve immediately, even in the middle of the night, no matter what it takes, because a dear guest has arrived from a long journey and is famished. And so you find yourself urgently banging on the door of your neighboring friend in the middle of the night asking for some bread. And the question Jesus poses here is this. If you were to do that, if you were the host and needed that bread and you were banging on your friend's door, do you think that your friend would say, please don't bother me, the door is locked, we're all wearing our pajamas, I just got tucked in, I just put my mouth guard on, whatever you do, sorry I can't get up and give you bread. Now, maybe that could be the response at the first knock. But look at how Jesus continues in verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. In other words, Jesus is saying, sure, it may not be enough that you're just his friend for him to get up and give you whatever you need. It's possible that a friend could say no to your request. Maybe you caught him in a bad mood or a bad time, given that it's the middle of the night. But if you pound that door ceaselessly and persistently, begging, crying out into the darkness, saying, I'm not going to leave until you give me some bread. I'm going to bang the door until sunrise if I must. 
then that will make anyone give you what you're looking for, friend or not, day or night, because of the sheer desperation and incessant tenacity of your pleading. And the big logical argument that Jesus is making here is this. It's a lesser to greater argument. If even a grumpy, lazy, selfish, earthly friend in the middle of the night can be moved to act in generosity by your persistence, how much more God, who is anything but that, who is not like that grumpy, lazy, sinful human being? Well, what then is God like? Well, Jesus tells us plainly in verse 9. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks. Everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. God is generous. He is self-giving in His nature. He is magnanimous in His kindness toward His children. He is not a grouchy, earthly friend who was unhappy to be awakened from his sleep and disturbed in the middle of the night. But he is our perfect heavenly father and he who keeps you will neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121. You see, Jesus' point is to precedent to our hearts that God is so very willing not just to hear, but so willing and desiring to give. God loves to give the best of His blessings to His children who ask. He is never bothered by our continual pestering, as it were. Rather, He welcomes it. He delights in it. Because He is more eager to give than we are to ask. And no matter what the circumstance may be, no matter how long you have been knocking and asking for this one thing, you must believe by faith, Christian, that your yet unanswered prayers are not because of a lack of willingness from God. You must believe by faith that He is the one who grants that everyone who asks receives All who seek find and all who knock the doors of His extravagant grace are widely opened to them. But that's the hardest thing, isn't it? When God doesn't seem to answer our prayers as we would expect. And we've been asking for a long time. That is when we are most prone to second guess God's kindness and love and willingness And we allow the need for our continual persistence to color our view of God as though He were unwilling and stingy. And it feels like we have to twist His arm repeatedly to get the smallest morsel of an answer. And so perhaps we find ourselves wondering, why do I have to keep asking? Why can't God just answer immediately? Because the fact that I have to knock over and over again, it sure makes it seem like God is reluctant and even begrudging when it comes to hearing my prayers. But actually, it's the opposite. It's not that the necessity of our persistence indicates our distance from God, but rather it reveals our nearness to God and the nature of our relationship with Him in Christ. 
You see, the most important word in this first little parable is the word impudence in verse 8. Because of his impudence, the neighboring friend will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, this is a perfectly fine translation. The only problem is that many of us uh, don't understand the meaning of the word in English. It's a difficult and rich vocabulary word in English that we don't commonly use on a daily basis. And so, what is the meaning of impudence in everyday terms? It means shamelessness. To be shameless. This entire scenario that Jesus depicts hinges on the shameless pestering of this person in need. And that's the catalyst for the heeding of the request. And by depicting this scenario in this way, Jesus is implying God wants you, child, to go to him, ask, seek, knock, shamelessly, boldly, to have the nerve to do such a thing, or even the smallest things. Why? Because that is how a child is with his father. Shameless, bold, no reservations about asking, and asking the same question over and over again. And that's how God wants us to relate to Him. You know, to be honest, my own temperament and personality is such that I don't like to ask for help. Uh, I like to do things on my own. If you want to do it right, get it done yourself. That's not a good thing. I've been trying to get better at it over the years. God has been sanctifying me over time, but still a long way to go. But truth be told, part of it is because I feel like I can do it better. No offense. But the other part is that I don't like being dependent on other people. I don't like bothering them. And even if it's harder for me, I'd rather deal with it on my own because it feels presumptuous that I would impose my burden on others, and perhaps some of you are wired the same way. And there's a great sense of an awareness of shame when it comes to asking for help or intruding on others. But here's the thing as much as I am that way, as much as I am that way with other people, I'm not that way at all with my parents. It doesn't mean that I take advantage of them. Of course, in my adulthood, I, I, I care much for them and I do a lot to care for them. But there's a sense in which no matter how much older I get, I will never lose this awareness that I am their child and I will always be their child. And by virtue of me being their child, I am entitled, as it were, to their attention, their care, their help. I, I know that it's right. It's proper. And so I'm not afraid to ask them shamelessly for that which I feel ashamed to ask others because of the confidence and security I have in my privileged position as their child. I have no qualms whatsoever about asking my dad to lend me an extra pair of hands to build some new furniture we got or, or to help do some maintenance work on my car. Actually, just the other day, I asked my dad for the very same thing. He was watching a movie, and it, was, it seemed like a very exciting part, and I 
kind of barged in and he said, hey, can you help uh, look at something with me? He goes, sure. And he paused and he got up. I was like, wow, what a great dad. Don't worry, I will never ask you guys in the middle of a movie. I won't interrupt you. But with my dad, I didn't, I didn't have an issue doing so. I'm, I'm not bashful to ask my mom for, for something I need. I'm not afraid to ask them for anything. In fact, I expect their happy willingness to do so, provided they're able to, and, and indeed they are. And, I mean, of course, it's, it's a two-way street, okay? We, we help each other. I'm not some spoiled man-child. But the point is, this shamelessness, this boldness, the, the nerve to ask them of anything, even if it feels like pestering, this is exactly how God wants us to be with Him. Because in Christ, God is our Father and He wants us to live out the reality of our privileged status as His children. You see, God has ordained it that we must persist in asking Him for certain things. There's a reason why He doesn't give things right away. Because by it, He is teaching us how to relate to Him in true childlike fashion. He is teaching us how to behave like His child. And that delights God because He is our Father. And so the fact that we must ask repeatedly for some things, it should not discourage us as it often does, but it should serve as an opportunity to remind us how real it is that we are in fact children of the Most High King. No peasant or slave dares to step foot inside the throne room of the king and barge in and ask repeatedly for personal requests. The audacity to do such a thing. The, the, the infringement, the, the irreverence of it all. But what about the king's own son? What about the king's little girl? That child has the right to bang on the doors of the throne room, knocking over and over again. Abba, Father, can you open please? I have something I want to say. God welcomes it. He is not disturbed by it all. He loves such shameless boldness and persistence because that reveals the confidence you have in the security of His love and your identity as His beloved child. Christian, do you realize that God wants you to actually enjoy the blessings of the gospel? But sometimes we're so busy having a hard time believing it that we never get to enjoy it. God wants you to enjoy being His child and all the privileges associated with it. As Hebrews 10 says, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us therefore draw near in full assurance of faith. You see, God has sovereignly ordained in His perfect wisdom that we would have to labor in persistent prayer about many things in this life because by it He is teaching and guiding us to behave more and more like His rightful children. To learn to speak to Him with such boldness and confidence. To live out the reality that we are His sons and daughters, and to grow in the confidence of His love. Our Father is very pleased when we disturb Him, so to speak, because He loves to commune with His children. And because this is true, Jesus urges us, don't give up. 
Don't be discouraged in prayer. And learn to even enjoy the process of having to ask God over and over again for what you need and long for. Because actually that is one of the warmest expressions of your intimate relationship with your affectionate Father in Heaven. Christian, have you considered that whatever concern or desire or need that has been in your heart for some time, first of all, it's possible that you do not have because simply you do not ask, as James 4.2 says. Maybe you never prayed and cast that burden upon God. But some of you have asked once or twice or several times, but the problem is you do not have because you gave up asking. You no longer ask because you're not convinced God hears. Oh, He hears. He knows. Do not give up. Keep asking. In fact, verse 9 It says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. And in our English Bibles, just because of the nature of the English language, it can look like it's it's just a one-time action that Jesus is referring to. We tend to read it implicitly in our minds as, ask once and it will be given. Seek once and you will find. Knock once and it will be opened. But the actual verbs that are used here are continuous verbs. In other words, Jesus is literally saying, keep asking and it will be given. Keep seeking. And you will find, persist in knocking, and it will be opened. Don't give up, is his point. Persist in prayer because your Father is good and generous. And He loves to give good gifts to you. In the matter of His timing, His kindness can be trusted. And that's what Jesus reassures us of of next in this second little paragraph beginning in verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You know, I remember when our son was first born. I feel like I talk about him a lot in the pulpit, but it's on my heart, I guess. Uh, as many of you... As parents probably know, it's fairly common for babies to drop down a little bit from their birth weight for the first couple of weeks and eventually to gain it all back uh, in the next couple of weeks as they feed and grow. But of course, being first-time parents, we were rather nervous. And when our son eventually dropped in weight from his birth weight, we were concerned, even though everything eventually was perfectly fine. And so I bought an infant scale to measure his weight at home every couple of days. I'm crazy and neurotic like that. But after a couple of weeks, when he finally reached his birth weight again, I was so thankful and relieved, and I kept telling my son, good job, good job. And he had no idea what I was talking about. He was two weeks old. And I remember in that moment of just my sheer delight and and joy and love for him, I instinctively cried out, I'll buy you all the toys in the world. I'm going to regret saying that one day. You know, we're going to have to not record the sermon uh, to destroy any evidence of me having said that. Don't remind him when he grows up. But it was interesting just to, for me to observe of myself that my natural reflex as a new father was to express my uncontainable love and delight in my son by wanting to bless him with the best gifts on earth. And again here, Jesus gives a lesser to greater argument. Look, if you, even you who are sinners, if even I 
No. To want to give good gifts to your children. How much more do you think your Heavenly Father desires to bless you with the absolute best of His blessings? You know, one of the hardest things when we're in a season of waiting is to believe that God actually wants to bless us. That He means to bless us. And the big question is, well, if He does mean to, if that is His will, why doesn't God answer sometimes? Now, we know why God prolongs His answer, as we just discussed, that to, is to teach us to persist in prayer and thus to commune with Him. But if God is so generous and only wants to bless His children with the best of blessings, why does God sometimes say no? Why does God sometimes deny Well, as we talked about last week, much for the same reason that every good parent must say no to their children because they ask for the wrong things. They ask for the things that that would harm them in the end because it's not good for them, but they're too immature to understand why. From the mind of a little child, sticking a metal fork in the electrical socket seems like a wonderful activity that that would bring much blessings of entertainment and enjoyment and satisfied curiosity. But of course, parents know what harm it will bring, even if the child is convinced otherwise. And so the answer is a loving no. Because we ask for the wrong thing sometimes. And so notice how this passage, which reassures us of God's generosity and eagerness in answering our prayers, it is situated within a particular context, namely that it follows after the Lord's Prayer in verses 1 through 4. In other words, the encouragements given to us in this passage, it assumes that we have learned how to pray rightly by the model that He gives to us in verses 1 through 4 in the Lord's Prayer, which teaches us how to order our lives and our thoughts around first seeking God's kingdom and His glory, that our highest ambition might be for the hallowing of God's name, for His honor and majesty to be magnified. And from this God-centered mindset of life, we then learn to pray rightly for our true basic necessities with thanksgiving and contentment. And then we learn that our greatest needs are to be praying for the needs of our souls, for our sanctification and growing in godliness. And so God will not answer prayers that ask for things that will lead us to greater worldliness or that will lead us to greater man-centeredness or greater self-dependence or whatever would take our eyes off of Him. He would be wrong and evil to grant those things because they are for our ultimate harm, even if we don't think so. And so God will sometimes deny our requests out of love because He knows what is truly best for us and we must trust that He does indeed. Now, having said that, the more tricky question is, well, what about when I ask for good things? For good reasons. For instance, what about the fact that I ask for a godly spouse? The gift of marriage. Isn't that God's design and will? What about when I ask for the gift of children? That's something my wife and I really understand, the struggle of waiting and waiting and asking for something we know to be a good thing, pleasing to God, whatever it might be. What if I'm asking for things like this for the right reasons? What if I do seek God's glory above all things and I'm asking Him to steward me these good gifts because I've learned through His Word how they can be properly enjoyed and used 
for his utmost glory. What if I have been asking for good things, for good reasons, as defined by his word, why then does God sometimes not grant them either immediately or indefinitely? When the answer is given to us in verse 13, as Jesus sets forth the analogy of the lesser to greater, notice how he refers to the nature of the gift that God gives to us. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, such as fish, eggs, toys, how much more will the Heavenly Father give what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. This is the good, the greatest gift that God gives to us, His Holy Spirit. Now, what does this mean? Let's be honest, it just sounds like some nebulous Christian lingo. What does it mean for God to give us the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, Jesus does not mean that the Holy Spirit is some thing that God gives. The Holy Spirit is not some force, some object, or some item to be possessed. He is a person, a he, not an it. He is the third person of the triune Godhead, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus says this, he's not saying that the Father will give the Holy Spirit as some commodity, but that he will give us the blessing of the Holy Spirit's ministry, who he is and what he does for us. That is the most excellent gift that God gives to us. And all gifts that he gives to us are under the umbrella of the gift of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Well, what does he do then? What is his ministry? How does he minister to us? For the believer, he is at work within us to sanctify us, to make us more and more like Jesus. One of the greatest promises in the Bible, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And that verse is preceded by verse 26, which says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He intercedes for us. He strengthens and He guides us. But that promise in Romans 8.28, which is often taken out of context, we have to ask... To what end does God work all things? What is the ultimate purpose to which we've been called? What is our highest good for which God sovereignly orchestrates all things and for which the Spirit of God is at work to help us towards? It is explained in the next verse in Romans 8.29 that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. God is at work by His Spirit to orchestrate all things for the ultimate good, which is to mature us spiritually, to mature us in greater Christ-likeness, that we would grow in true holiness. This is why sometimes, even when we ask for good things, for the right things, for the right reasons, God has His reasons for why he has not yet answered. And maybe he won't ever. Because through it all, all along through the waiting, his spirit is wonderfully present and at work in your heart 
to conform you into greater Christ-likeness, to mature you in godliness, to finish the work He began, to sustain you and cause you to persevere in faith all the way to the end. And to teach you very crucial lessons that can only be learned in the crucible of trials. Christian, it is hard being in the cold, dry winter seasons of life. Believe me, I know I've been there many times and I've struggled. And we wish that we could be perpetually in the springtime of of experiencing constant and immediate blossoms of visibly answered prayers left and right. But beloved, understand this. There are some fruits that only grow and ripen in the winter seasons of life. And they are some of the sweetest and most nourishing of fruits. Whether you realize it or not, God has never ceased to bless you in every season of life, both in the seasons of triumph and in the seasons of trials. And you can trust Him that even when He seems to not answer your prayers, He is most certainly hearing and already answering you in ways beyond your understanding. Ultimately, for your highest good of maturing you as His child, growing you, nourishing your soul, growing you in faith, growing you in dependence, growing you in character, and growing you in prayerfulness. And so Christian, don't be discouraged in all the waiting and all the not having. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. And trust in the Spirit's work in you that you are not forgotten or neglected, that all of your needs most certainly reach God's ears because He knows your needs before you even think to ask them. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, God desires to bless you with the ministry of His Spirit, and that is to reveal the truth of who He is, his word to show you as plainly as you can see here non-christian that god is the perfect father who alone supplies all of our needs and he has done that supremely in the gospel because you and i are sinners before a holy god every one of us we are all unrighteous everyone is destined for eternal punishment and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves no morality no good works is sufficient because we are guilty before an infinitely holy God. But the gospel, the good news is this, and while we were helpless and unable to do anything to atone for our sins, God did everything for us by sending His own Son to take the place of sinners, to live on our behalf by living the perfect sinless life that we fail to live, and to die the death that we deserve to die, taking on the wrath of God 
on the cross that was meant for sinners like us. And he rose on the third day to show that his death was truly sufficient for sin and that he paid it all. And he calls sinners to simply confess, to acknowledge that they are ruined sinners unable to save themselves and to simply trust in all that he has done. And all who place their faith in Him will be totally forgiven of their sins and be reconciled to God and be secured to eternal life. All of God's blessings in the fullest of measures. Friend, this is your greatest need if you are without Christ. Look at the sheer kindness of God and how He offers to you this ultimate eternal blessing that is undeserved and yet in a manner in which he requires nothing from you. You have to contribute nothing except that you simply humble yourself, acknowledge yourself as a sinner, and ask shamelessly for the free gift of salvation that you don't deserve. You don't have to cleanse yourself, you don't have to work your way into God's favor. Jesus Christ has done it all by His life, death, and resurrection. And God is freely and generously willing to give to you unmerited favor and love and acceptance, even that you would be adopted into His family where you might be secured as His child forever, beloved by Him. God gives it all to you, to sinners who confess and believe. That's why it's such good news. This is the truth. And today, if you hear His voice, if you sense His Spirit convicting you of the truth, if you sense the Spirit at work pressing this truth into your conscience, and you know that this is true, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. But receive it by faith. You have not only because you ask not. You are without Christ only because you have not asked Christ to save you. But if you ask non-Christian, you can be certain of this. He will never refuse sinners who come to Him, who seek His grace and mercy. Because God loves to save sinners. He loves to bless undeserving sinners who call out to Him. And so, friend, come to Jesus. Confess your sin. Put your trust in Him. Knock. And I swear to you, because God has promised, that the door of His salvation will be opened to you. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You as we have all been confronted with the truth of who You really are. So self-giving, so generous, so kind, lavishing upon sinners the richest measures of your grace. And even more so to continue to lavish upon each and every one of your children your utmost love and delight and the full measure of your blessings. Father, we confess that it is so hard sometimes to believe this to be true. As we walk this life of faith and we run into obstacles and trials that discourage us, but Father, we ask that your Spirit would minister to us, that you would give us this good gift continually, that your Spirit 
would apply and sear this truth into our hearts. That day by day we might grow to trust you more and more. And we thank you that indeed you have given us the continual sign of the covenant in the Lord's Supper. That as we take the bread and the cup we are reminded of that most loving heart and tenderness with which you offer your grace to us in visible, tangible elements. And we ask now that you would set apart the bread and cup, which is just ordinary, but set it apart for the extraordinary purpose of ministering to our souls and confirming the truth of the gospel of your great love to us in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.